0: In the town of uh, Bolton, England, uh, there is a museum of natural history, archaeology, and art uh, known simply as Bolton Museum. And in 2002, a private collector by the name of George Greenhall approached them with a remarkable find. Uh, Over the years, the Greenhall family had developed a bit of a reputation as art dealers as they sold off various pieces from the family's rich collection of heirlooms. Well, in 2002, George came to the Bolt Museum with an Egyptian statue that he said his great grandfather had purchased from an estate sale of a wealthy English manor in the late 1800s. This statue, which he claimed had been appraised at a value of no more than five hundred pounds or around six hundred and fifty dollars, uh, he said this uh, statue had been passed down to his grandfather and then subsequently forgotten. Again, about six hundred fifty dollars statue, not that big of a deal. It was forgotten. He had recently discovered it, though, among his grandfather's, quote, forgotten collection and uh, was considering putting it in his garden as a kind of fancy decoration. But before he did that, he thought he would bring it to the museum and see if they wanted to take a look at it and see, you know, what it was worth. And the museum agreed. The man produced paperwork confirming that the artifact had indeed been in the family uh, for around 100 years. A catalog from the 1892 uh, estate sale of Silverton Park, which the man claimed the statue had come from, uh, it confirmed the sale of, quote, a draped figure of a female, five marble statues and eight Egyptian figures. Uh, the description matched the statue, uh, which was a torso of a draped female. So Bolt Museum decided to take a look at it. They, they passed the statue along to experts at the British Museum and also to the famed Christie's Auction House. And after examination by various Egyptologists, it was declared to be authentic. Although the statue was really without rival, it was a -a one-of-a-kind type of a find, the experts still determined from the style of the piece and from its similarities to other statues on display in other museums that it was from the mid-14th century B.C. Just FYI, that would put it right around the time of Moses, just a little bit after the time of the Exodus, actually. And just like that, this statue, which this man thought was worth just around 500 pounds, was actually estimated to be worth something closer to 1 million pounds, or about 1.2 million dollars. The Bolton Museum realized that they were sitting on a remarkable discovery. One curator at the museum even declared the statue, which came to be known as the Amarna Princess, a find of, quote, great significance. And so they offered to buy it. And since the elderly gentleman wanted to keep the artifact in Bolton, he agreed to sell it to the museum at the discount sum of 440,000 pounds. That converts to about $550,000 at current exchange rates. At the time, the purchase was considered, considered to be a real coup for the museum, This was an artifact that a museum like the one in Bolton wouldn't normally be able to get their hands on, and not especially at such a discount rate. So you can imagine the pride and the excitement that the curators at that museum would have felt when it finally went on display for the first time in London in 2003. That joy was short-lived, however, for you see in 2005... The Greenhalgh family tried to sell a set of three Assyrian reliefs that they said their great-grandfather had also purchased from the Silverton Park estate. George brought the, the, brought the reliefs, which were believed to be from around 600 B.C. to the British Museum, and asked if they wanted to purchase them. The British Museum handed the carvings over to their curators for inspection, just as they had done for the Bolton Museum's Amarna Princess. Once again, the British Museum concluded that the reliefs were genuine. And once again, it appeared that the greenhouse had discovered a significant and valuable artifact. Early estimates stated that the reliefs could have been worth as much as 250,000 pounds. But then the British Museum handed the reliefs over to the Bonhams Auction House for a second opinion. And that's when things started to fall apart for the greenhouse. You see, one of the Assyrian reliefs depicted a soldier with two horses on it. Well, the Antiquities Consultant at Bonham noticed that the horse's reins were, quote, not consistent with the reins depicted in other Assyrian reliefs at that time. In short, the scene in the relief didn't appear to be historically accurate. And not only that, but there was a slight misspelling on one of the words of the relief. It was nothing major, just an absent diacritical mark. It would be really nothing much different than you or I forgetting to dot an I or cross a T, but it was significant. Because these reliefs were apparently presented to the Assyrian king Sennacherib. And yes, that's the Sennacherib of Second Kings 18 and 19. Needless to say, a spelling error is one thing. But a spelling error on a relief intended to be displayed in the palace of the most powerful and perhaps ruthless king on the face of the earth is another. Quite frankly, it just didn't happen. An investigation into the greenhouse was opened and it was soon discovered that the relief was a forgery. It was a fake. A subsequent search of the Greenhow home found an entire stockpile of fakes in forgeries, which would have been worth somewhere in upwards of, of 10 million pounds on the open market. George Greenhow didn't have an art-collecting great-grandfather. What he had was an especially gifted con artist for a son, one of the best and most resourceful art forgers of all time. The Armarna Princess, which the Bolton Museum had bought for $440,000, was a total fake. George's son, Sean, had actually whipped it together in the family's garden shed over the span of about three weeks using nothing more than basic do-it-yourself tools, tea, and clay. It was utterly worthless. In fact, all of the artifacts sold by the greenhouse over a span of 17 years, a collection totaling somewhere between 850,000 pounds and 1.5 million pounds, it was all utterly worthless. Of course, when it comes to the art world, there's a significant difference between a forgery... And the real thing, no matter how good it looks, no matter how much a work of art mimics the real thing, if it is not authentic, then in the eyes of an appraiser, it's utterly worthless. That's how things work in the art world. And according to Jesus, that's how things work in the kingdom of heaven too. Just like there are art forgers who will create a very convincing fake that they'll sell to others in order to line their own pockets, so also there are spiritual forgers, religious con artists, who will create a very convincing but also very false message, which they will sell to others for their own benefit. Like the art forger, there is not an entirely new creation that they make. It's a copy. It's patterned after the original. And for this reason, it can be very hard to detect. But if you fail to detect it, and then you go and sell off everything you have to buy it, it's going to ruin you. Jesus warns about these con artists as early as Matthew 7.15 when He tells the crowds, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves. The Apostle Paul likewise picks up that warning in passages like 2 Corinthians 11 where he warns of people who preach, quote, another Jesus than the one we proclaimed and who, quote, disguise themselves as apostles of Christ and as, quote, servants of righteousness. This is actually one of the major themes of the New Testament. This warning against forgers. The Apostle John, for instance, regularly warns of deceivers and antichrists in his epistles. Jude also speaks of blasphemers, loud mouthed boasters who show favoritism to gain advantage, as he warns his readers to keep themselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life in his epistle. Peter also warns of false prophets and false teachers who will, quote, secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the the master who bought them. This is a theme that really just runs rampant throughout the Scriptures, this warning against men who Paul says, quote, wander away into vain discussion and imagine that godliness is a means of gain. But where we have come across this idea most recently is in Matthew 23, 13 to 15, where after this final confrontation in the temple on Tuesday of Passion Week, Jesus says to the religious leaders in the presence of the crowds and the, and the disciples, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut "...the kingdom of heaven and people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves." In this passage, Jesus illustrates the effect of these false teachers. These men, who Jesus explains back in verses 1 to 12, take on the appearance of religion in order to receive praise from men, these hypocrites who feign concern for the glory of God, for their own benefit. These men, who Jesus will explain in the verses that follow, teach their proselytes a hollow and empty religion, a fake religion with a forged righteousness. These men, Jesus explains, not only shut people out of the kingdom of heaven, but they make their converts twice as much a child of hell as themselves. They not only deny the truth, but they effectively inoculate people against it. And the way they do this is by giving them enough of the truth to convince them that they have repented, enough of the truth to make them think that they have been saved without actually leading them to their salvation. This is what Jesus means when He says that, he may, that they make their converts twice as much a child of hell as themselves. He's saying that in their conversion, the Pharisees actually make their disciples' state second state worse than the first. The Pharisee's proselyte is going to have a harder time entering into heaven than even the Pharisee himself is going to have. And the reason for this, as I've explained, is because while the Pharisees know enough to know that they're propagating a lie, they know that they're teaching a counterfeit, a forgery. The convert, more often than not, does not. Whereas there's some hope, right, for the art forger to publicly denounce the forgery because they know it's a forgery. They made it. The purchaser doesn't have this same opportunity because they're deceived. They believe the forgery is real. Bolton Museum believed the Amarna princess was real. And this is why Jesus is so often speaking so harshly against the religious leaders. The effect of their false teaching is spiritually devastating. It's about about as destructive of, of a thing as you could possibly do to another person to knowingly lie to them about the character and nature of God and the message of His salvation. So what we're doing right now is we're exam- examining counterfeit Gospels, false Gospels, forged, faked Gospels. We're examining the meaning of Matthew 23, 13-15. to, fi- uh, 13 to 15. We're talking about the implications of that passage right now. We looked at what it meant a few weeks ago. Now we're talking about the, the effect of that religious deception. And we're talking about the implications of that idea by examining the false Gospels that surround us. Just like you probably cannot sell affords Egyptian statue to someone who has no interest in Egyptian art or archaeology, no matter how much of a deal you're willing to give them, so also you cannot sell false religion to someone who has no interest in true religion. You cannot sell a fraudulent Jesus to someone who doesn't really have much interest in the authentic one to begin with. Point is, to sell a fraud, you have to at least have a market for the real thing. To sell a forged work of art, you have to have a group of people who are interested in purchasing the original or authentic one. And it's the same with the gospel. You're going to see false gospels proliferate once the true gospel has been established. False apostles appear in the wake of real ones. And the reason why they pop up is because they realize there's a market for the forgery. There's a price for the knockoff. This is what happened to men like Paul. False apostles came in after him, disguised as genuines, disguised as Christians, because they realized that Paul had created a market for that message. And they knew that if they could leverage that situation in the right way, then it would mean very lucrative business. And what this means is that false religion, at least the most deceptive brands of false religion, the cheap knockoffs, they're going to proliferate in areas where, where true religion can be found. Jesus warned about this sort of thing. He said false religion would spread in the presence of true gospel witness. And this means that we of all people, we who live in one of the most gospel-saturated portions of the planet, we must be especially on guard against false gospels. And so that's what we're doing here over these few weeks. We're taking time in a little, uh, to discuss the implications of Matthew 23, 13-15 by examining false gospels. And just like the greenhouse... Forgeries were discovered only after the tiniest of errors was uncovered. This we realize is how we're going to work with false gospels too. The appeal of false gospels is that they look good. They look real. They're very convincing counterfeits. They're only off on one or two key points. and That's what makes them so hard to discover. That's how they meet their market and get the sale. They do it through a very convincing impersonation. And so what we're doing in this series is defining the false gospel, we're discussing what is true or appealing about that gospel, and then we're disclosing the error, and we're discussing that. We've actually already done this with four goal-oriented false gospels. I've said that uh, false gospels can be lumped into two different categories. You have the goal-oriented false gospels. Uh, These are the ones where a person sells you a fake Rolex at retail price. They get you to hope in something other than Jesus. They make the good news about the wrong thing, about something other than Jesus. That's a goal-oriented false gospel. And then you have means-oriented false gospels where the person sells a real Rolex, but at three times the markup, or at a suspiciously low discount. They sell you the right product, they sell you Jesus, but they do it at the wrong price. They convince you to make a wrong kind of commitment to Jesus to exercise the wrong type of faith. We've already looked at four of the goal-oriented false gospels. This morning we're going to look at two more. As always, the point in this series, I just want to point this out again, the point in this series is to look first at ourselves and to ask ourselves in which gospel have I believed, have I embraced the true gospel or a false one? And then second, we want to consider, even if we've believed in the true gospel, we want to consider whether or not a false gospel has affected our thinking. I think that's very common. True believers are out there who have whose thinking has been distorted by false gospels. We want to be on guard against that. Of course, I'd also encourage you to think about how you proclaim the gospel as we talk about this topic. We've talked about this last time. There are men out there who I think it's fair to say probably inadvertently communicate a false gospel simply because they've allowed unbiblical evangelistic methods to infiltrate their thinking. We don't want to do that. We don't want to contribute to the spread of false gospels inadvertently simply through a lack of discernment in our methods. So consider this as well. Ask yourself, am I communicating a pure gospel or have I unintentionally encouraged belief in one of these false gospels that we're talking about today through my methods? All three of these questions I think are very helpful for us to ask considering where we live and what Jesus says about false religion in Matthew twenty-three, thirteen to 15 Let's go ahead and get started this morning with the next false gospel in our series. Up to this point, we've talked about the prosperity gospel, the soft prosperity gospel, the family values gospel, and the therapeutic gospel. The fifth false gospel in our series is this, the experience gospel, the experience gospel. Uh, I like to call this one the awesome gospel, (laughs) the awesome gospel. I call it that because that's kind of the intended goal of this gospel. Under this gospel, the goal is really to have an overwhelming, mystical kind of experience with God. And this way, it's a lot like the therapeutic gospel, because it's a gospel that's focused on our feelings. That's the good news that this gospel proclaims. We get to have this very moving, very emotional sort of experience. Only this time, the feelings aren't necessarily related to a positive self-image of ourselves, or what we might otherwise deem mental health. It doesn't really have anything to do with our outlook on the world or of ourselves. Instead, this gospel is rooted in our experience of the presence of God. And and the feeling isn't something like happy or sad or angry or content. The feeling that it desires to produce is is more of a state of being than it is a feeling. It's a sense of awe and wonder over the presence of God. Now, when I put it like that, I would imagine you may already be asking yourself, well, what's wrong with that, right? Right? I mean, didn't you just say last week that the gospel is about reconciliation with God? Didn't you say that the gospel is about delighting in, enjoying God? Isn't the whole point of the gospel to be in fellowship with God? Isn't the whole point worship? And isn't worship, more than anything else, a sense of awe in the presence of God? And I did say that, and that is the point of the gospel. And I would say that worship is going to be expressed with a sense of awe in the presence of God. You look at Isaiah 6, for instance, and when Isaiah glimpses the glory of God, he's dumbstruck with awe and wonder. In fact, he's trembling, declaring, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He is in trembling awe in the presence of God. Likewise, Exodus 14.31 says that after God demonstrated His power by destroying Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, that, quote, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. They're struck not just with a cheerful kind of happiness or with a positive self-image. No, they're struck with awe, a kind of fearful wonder over what they just witnessed. This seems to be the regular experience of men who encounter the glory of God throughout Scripture. From Moses in the burning bush all the way to John in the book of Revelation, what we see is that men are awed in the presence of God. And that's definitely worship in the true sense of the word. God is certainly magnified in Isaiah's compulsive humility or Israel's trembling astonishment there at the Red Sea. So yes, the gospel is about worship. And that worship should lead to this, this, this sense of broken, almost kind of servile wonder. It should produce awe. But again, keep in mind that there's a subtlety to these false Gospels. They're almost right. They're close enough that they look like the real thing. Yes, worship is central to the Gospel, but what the awesome Gospel gets wrong is that it sees the experience of worship as the prize of the Gospel. Not the object of worship. Now, just like last week, I'm cutting a fine line here, but there is an important difference. Worship is certainly a byproduct of fellowship with God, which makes the gospel possible. It's the natural, which which comes as a result of the gospel. It's the natural side effect of the gospel. But it's not the prize. The prize is fellowship with the one who produces the the worship, not the worship experience itself. And that's what the awesome gospel gets wrong. It flips the order around, and it sees God as a means to the experience of the worship. He's the means to the end, not the end itself. If I could put it like this, in the awesome gospel, worship is the drug, and God is the dealer. He gives the worshiper the fix thereafter. And that's idolatry. It makes the experience of worship the thing that makes us happy instead of seeing worship as the natural expression of the happiness and joy that we receive in Christ. And that's idolatry, to see our experience as the source of our happiness instead of as the byproduct of our source of happiness, which is Christ. It's idolatry. The gospel does not declare that Jesus redeems us to an experience of awe. As if that's what our sin produced, an inability to experience awe. No, what sin did was it broke our relationship with God. Jesus restores us to fellowship with God. And awe is the natural result of what happens when that relationship is healed. Awe is the result of the good news of the gospel. It is not in and of itself the good news. So, what does this gospel look like practically? Like, what do you what do you see when you see it on dis, on display? And again, just like the soft prosperity, the family values, the therapeutic gospels, this false gospel spans across denominational barriers. There are many confessionally orthodox churches who inadvertently or inadvertently communicate this gospel. Again, like I said last week, they don't always do this intentionally. In fact, I think probably more often than not it's probably being done unintentionally. They're not intending to sell a false gospel, but because they're not thinking very precisely about the impact of their words, that's what what gets communicated to outsiders. For example, it's become pretty frequent today for churches to advertise their, quote, spirit-filled worship experience. When they're trying to get people to attend their services, that's what they lead with. They lead with the worship experience. They push the emotion and the awe that people are going to feel in the worship service. you understand? That's the product they're selling. They're telling people, this is why you should come to church. This is why you should assemble with us on Sunday morning. It actually doesn't have anything to do with Jesus and His ransom for our sin. Nothing to do with forgiveness on the, or the cross. It has, doesn't have anything to do with the worship or praise that we're going to offer to God. Right? No, it's about the feelings that we're going to receive when we do that. The worship, ironically enough, is not about God. It's about us. Incidentally, I tend to think that you, when you see worship music that sings more about the Christians, more about the Christian, it sings about the emotions that we feel and the things that we're going to do for God than it does about God himself. That's a very subtle example of the awesome gospel on display. Don't get me wrong, I don't think that every song that has an I or a we in it is wrong, not in the slightest. There are moments in worship when it's appropriate for us to sing not just to God, but to one another. In fact, that's the model you see in, in places like Ephesians 5, 18-20 and Colossians three sixteen. However, at the same time, if the worship sings sings more about how I feel than it does about how great God is, well, then I think you're seeing an example of the cart being put before the horse. We shouldn't be happy over the fact that we're happy, as odd as that sounds, even though that's kind of a lot of what contemporary worship music ends up being about. No, we should be happy over the fact that we know God. The point isn't to to take delight in our happiness. The point is to take delight in the God who makes us happy. So there are, these are a couple examples of examples go- of the awesome gospel on display, and that can happen in a Baptist church just as much as it can in many other churches. In fact, sad to say, but I think there's a good chance, actually, that you're more likely to encounter this kind of worship in a Baptist church than you will in a lot of other denominations, and that's due to the attractional model that so many Baptist churches have adopted as their method of evangelism. After all, if you're trying to get unbelievers to come to church... And Jesus alone isn't going to do it, right? So you have to find something else that attracts, something else that can appeal to the flesh while still being presented in a sanctified kind of package to get them in. Hence the prevalence of the awesome gospel and the family values gospel and the soft soft prosperity and the therapeutic gospels in Baptist churches. And again, I feel like I have to go out of my way to say this so that I'm not being misunderstood, but this is not to say that these churches would ever say that that's the gospel if you were to ask them. They'd have a pretty decent understanding of justification, most of them, if you were to ask them. But poor theology has produced an unbiblical method which has, in turn, garbled the communication of the gospel. So again, the the awesome gospel spans across denominational lines. And the reason is because it often has to do with packaging more than it does with doctrine. Though, of course, doctrine certainly plays a role in the packaging. However, probably the clearest example of this kind of gospel is what you see in many charismatic churches today. Again, that's not to say that all charismatic churches do this. I don't want to be accused of stereotyping here. I I realize that there are many charismatic churches that don't fall into this error, but at the same time, there are many who do. And that's mostly because of their doctrine, because of their theology. Just like you have many Baptist churches who struggle with the right packaging because of their theology, there are many charismatic churches who struggle with the right practice because of their theology. You look at many charismatic churches, for instance, and what you find is that because they see miraculous and supernatural experiences as an ongoing and normal ministry of the Holy Spirit today, the Holy Spirit and the miracles that He performs, that becomes their focus very often rather than Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. It's certainly not wrong to delight in the gift of the Holy Spirit. I think you can look at Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, for example. You can look at the line of Paul's argument in Galatians 3. And it's obvious that the gift of the Holy Spirit plays a substantial role in the gospel. In the Old Testament, he is part of the new covenant package. God's people awaited for his outpouring throughout the Old Testament, and so should we. It's something we should anticipate, look forward to, delight in. However, what has to be understood is that the Holy Spirit is not so much the gift as much as he is the one who points to the gift, which is Jesus Christ. The problem with much of charismatic theology is that it misunderstands the role of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I was recently reading an author, a man who on the whole I respect, and many of you in here will know who I'm talking about because you're reading the book along with me. Uh, But when he came to describe the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, he said that the primary role of the Holy Spirit was to manifest the presence of God and that the manifestation of this present produces a, quote, godlike atmosphere in the church. This is an evangelical author. Um, again, this crosses the denominational lines. Now, setting aside for a moment, that I still don't really know how you can describe a godlike atmosphere. Like, how is an atmosphere godlike? I, I, I don't know what that is. Someone tell me, because I don't have a clue how an atmosphere can be godlike. I know various attributes of God that I could say could be attributed to a person. That can make them godlike, right? Like you could talk about things like love, things like wisdom, things like power. I don't know how you could ever ascribe any of those things to an atmosphere, an impersonal atmosphere. Tell me, what does an atmosphere of love look like, or even of power? What does that mean? An atmosphere of power? Is that when the hair stands up on the back of my neck? I just don't know. I guess I missed that that verse in my Bible, what describes a godlike atmosphere. But even setting aside that whole concept, this this just isn't the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. He's not there to manifest the presence of God in the church. He's there to point to Jesus Christ. Now, I don't have time to walk you through all the verses that make that point here this morning, so you just have to take my word for it for now. If you'd like to discuss it tonight at 6, we can do that. But for now, you'll just have to believe me when I say that this is not the role of the Holy Spirit to manifest the presence of God. Rather, He's there to point to the truth of God, to even guide the church, you might say, to guide the church specifically as it relates to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus tells the the disciples that the Holy Spirit is going to do when He comes. He tells them in John 16, 13-14, when the Spirit comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. And again, there's more verses that point to this idea than just this one, but this paints the picture. The Holy Spirit reveals Jesus Christ. Whether that's through the miracles that He performs through, uh, to po- that point to Jesus, or, or through the apostles that point to Jesus, or whether that's through the inspiration of the Scripture, or the various gifts that He provides to the church, or whether it's even through the internal conviction that the elect feel as they read the Word of God, the point is that He points to Christ. This is how Paul even prays in Ephesians 3. He prays not that the Spirit would manifest God's presence among the Ephesians. No, he prays that God would strengthen them with, quote, power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, and that's key, the love of the Holy Spirit that the the Holy Spirit imparts is key to this. Paul prays that being strengthened by the power of God's Spirit and being rooted and grounded in love... The Ephesians might, quote, have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. He reveals the Christ to us in a way that he was not visible to the prophets and the saints of the Old Testament. In other words, he's not the hope of the gospel. Rather, he points to the hope of the Gospel, which is Jesus Christ. And then as He points to this hope, and we worship that hope, He produces the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is how you know whether or not you've had an encounter with the Holy Spirit according to the New Testament. It's not when you experience some kind of subjective feeling. It's when you see yourself growing in love for Christ and for His body. It's when you see you having patience for those who sin against you and kindness towards your enemies. If you want to know where the Spirit is moving, then look for humble submission to the Scriptures, not subjective feelings. Look for unity and order, not individualism and ecstatic chaos. The idea, once again, is that Jesus is the prize and the Holy Spirit is just the person who delivers Him. And the feelings that we experience, they're the byproduct of what we experience when we unwrap that present and realize what we've been given in Christ. Charismatic churches, because of their theology, often get this wrong. In fact, I can recall having a conversation with someone a few years back uh, who attended a charismatic church and we were just chatting. And I asked them to share their testimony with me I asked them to tell me how they became a Christian and when and how they came to know Christ. And what they proceeded to tell me was not a story of how they, came, how they came to recognize their sin and the grace that Christ offers them through faith as He covers their sin. No, they started to tell me this story about this beam of light that came shining through a window one night. And about this other time where they saw their child's nose get broken and how they watched it healed right there on the spot. In short, they told me the story of how they came to experience the miraculous outpouring in their eyes of the Holy Spirit, not of how the Spirit pointed and directed them to faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, that's the awesome gospel on display. When the gift that God gives is an experience instead of His Son, or when His Son is given only as a means for that experience, you've missed the point. You've believed in a false gospel. At the very least, a false gospel has seriously affected your thinking. So what exactly is wrong with the awesome gospel? I think we've already alluded to the issue, so but, but but let me state it plainly it's idolatrous. It substitutes emotion for relationship and subjective experience for concrete revelation. I think you could almost call this the existentialist gospel, because if you're familiar with existentialism, and those of you in my World Views class, you'll we'll, we'll get there. That's kind of what this is like. It stresses feeling over fact, experience more than knowledge. In fact, I think you will find that in communities that really stress this gospel, there's almost an anti-intellectual attitude, as if knowledge and facts just get in the way of true worship. We almost don't need the scripture or doctrine in order to know God because he communicates his will to us directly through his presence. And just so you know, that's practically the theology of, of existential theologians like Søren Kierkegaard down to the T. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that every Christian who communicates in this gospel stresses experience or that, to that degree, but some and several certainly do. So not only is this gospel the product of idolatry but it often also produces idolatry. Again, even the Christian who genuinely believes in the gospel can still be negatively impacted by the theological underpinnings of this gospel if they are not careful. So ask yourself in which gospel have I believed? Is my hope in the experience that I'm going to have when I turn to Christ or is it in Christ himself? And if Christ is my hope, am I still allowing this false gospel to affect my thinking about how I will come to know Christ? And what gospel am I proclaiming to others? Am I selling them on the joy of the worship experience? Or am I telling them about the one who produces that joy? Examine yourself and make sure that your joy, your hope, is in Christ alone. So that's false gospel number five, the experience gospel, or again, as I like to call it, The awesome gospel. I feel like that's a little bit more memorable way to understand what it's about. Let's turn now to our sixth false gospel. This is the last goal-oriented false gospel in our series. And this is the social or political gospel. The social or political gospel. According to this gospel, the prize of the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus came to institute social or political change. Again, you'll see this come in in, in several different packages. For example, there are actual theological systems that are intentionally structured around this thought. Uh, The liberation theology of Latin America is one example of this type of system, though I don't think you're probably too likely to encounter it here. More than likely, the, the kind of social gospel that you're going to encounter here is going to occur informally and, again, across denominational boundaries. And it can be either conservative or liberal in its political orientation. For example, when you see a conservative preacher spend week after week in the pulpit railing about the political state of our nation, then I think more often than not you're probably seeing the political gospel on display. The idea that that preacher is communicating, again, whether intentional or not, is that the core of Jesus' mission is political restoration. Again, he might not ever say that, but that's what's being heard by his listeners, and that's what they're going away with. They think Christianity is primarily a political movement. You'll notice, by the way, if you've ever encountered this type of thing, that this particular version of the political gospel tends to overlap with the family values gospel. The idea, once again, is that Jesus died to give us good morals. That's the good news. He's the, the refuge from the cultural storm as society around us slipped further and further into moral chaos. And so what our country needs to do, if we're going to stop this decline, is turn back to Jesus. He needs to start passing laws, legislation, that advance Christian morals. And that's going to save us. And by the way, before you get ahead of me, I'm not saying I'm not saying that we shouldn't vote according to Christian principles. Far from it. All I'm saying is that what can happen in some situations is that this particular point is pushed so hard that it ends up confusing the gospel. People think end up thinking that Christianity is about a political movement of a particular moral agenda. And then they set their hope in that rather than in Christ. The political gospel can also be marked by an overemphasis on social activism. It's not uncommon to hear some Christians speak of how Jesus came to, quote, transform society and then spend all their time and energy fighting for social justice to the degree that they never even speak of Jesus. He's actually completely in the background. This seems to be a particularly trendy brand of Christianity among younger Christians right now. It would seem that because the morally motivated political gospel has led to the church being branded as bigots and hypocrites by our society, you see this response in the younger generation where they seek to present a gentler, more compassionate version of the gospel to the world through their social activism. They want to be known for their deeds of love rather than for their law-keeping. And for what it's worth, that's commendable, right? It's just that this is simply a different brand of the same thing. It's still the political gospel. It's a more socially acceptable brand of the political gospel, but it's still the political gospel. It declares that Jesus is here to transform society. Now, I realize I'm painting with a very broad brush here. and There's a lot more nuance to this particular topic than I can really present in the amount of time that I have to communicate all this. So let me just repeat to make myself clear. Just like I said, with all the other false gospels, it's not as if all forms of political or social activism indicate or communicate a false political gospel. There's a biblical basis for this kind of thinking. That's why it has such an appeal. And if, if our social activism or politics is viewed on that biblical basis, it can certainly be driven by the right motives and done in the right way. All I'm saying is that even when this is done right, and it is very much possible, to, again, to be socially or politically active for the sake of Christ, but even when it is done right, you're going to have some individuals who misunderstand the point of Christian social activism, and confuse it for the goal of the gospel. When it gets down to it, what they think is that Jesus is, first and foremost, a social revolutionary. Just like with the moral or therapeutic gospels, they don't see Jesus so much as a savior as much as they see him as a teacher. Or even when they do see him as a savior, he's saving society like the hope of the gospel for the person who believes this, is that when Jesus returns, or even before then, he's going to establish a society without poverty, injustice, or evil. Now again, stated in those terms, this gospel isn't entirely far off, right? According to the scriptures, Jesus is going to establish a society without poverty, injustice, or evil at his return. And just to be clear, this is something we can get excited about. You look at passages like Isaiah 9, 1-7, to where it says that the Son of David will burn the boot of the trampling warrior and the garment rolled with blood with fire as he establishes an eternal throne of justice and righteousness. You, you look at passages like Isaiah 11, 1-9, where it says that the Messiah will judge the poor with righteousness and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And it's not only, it's not only clear in those passages that Jesus is going to one day institute a radical Political and social change. But it's also clear that this is something that we should take hope in. That's how those passages are written. We are to anticipate the coming of the Messianic kingdom. To look forward to it. To delight in it. Even further, I think it's fair to say. That while the hope of this kingdom is primarily future. That's not to say that we cannot or should not in some form or fashion. Participate in it. Or perhaps better stated, proclaim it. Even now. I want to make this really clear. I'm not saying, as I point out this false gospel, I want you to understand, I am not saying that the Christian should not be engaged in culture. Far from it, actually. In fact, I'm reading a book right now called uh, Total Truth. The subtitle for that book is Releasing Christianity from its Cultural Captivity. And one of the things that I absolutely love about this book is that the author, Nancy Percy, does an outstanding, outstanding job of pointing out That we as Christians have actually adopted a very secular mentality when we come to the conclusion that our religious faith doesn't belong in the public sphere. Like if we think our faith should not intersect with our work, or that it should not have an effect on the quote-unquote non-moral issues of culture, then we've been duped. That's not biblical thinking. You go back to Genesis 1 through 3 and the whole dominion mandate that's laid out there affects things like society and culture. The uh, the curse, for instance, the effect of sin on humanity, it alters our approach to work. That's part of the dominion mandate. Human beings were made to work. It's part of how we reflect the glory of God. So when people tell us you need to keep your religion out of your work, it needs to stay out of the public sphere, they're pushing an unbiblical worldview on us. Jesus restores every aspect of our being and that includes what we do in the public sphere as well. He restores that component of our life just as much as He does everything else. Again, Jesus is going to establish a kingdom when He returns. And we're going to live under the rules and customs of that kingdom. In other words, when Jesus comes back, He's going to establish a society, a culture, and while I think we absolutely must understand that he has not, and let me repeat this, he has not called us to, quote, redeem the cultures around us. Like, I, just, I do not believe that that's part of our mission right now. No nations are going to be left standing when Jesus, is, when Jesus judges the earth. And he makes it very clear that in the interim, he does not expect us to overthrow Caesar, he expects us to pay taxes to him. Like, we're just not here to establish the kingdom of Christ on earth. But I will say this. We are here to proclaim the coming of Christ's kingdom. And so while I think we must understand that the redemption of cultures is not a part of our mission, at the same time, it makes sense that we, we who are already citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that we still proclaim that coming kingdom by as much as possible, living according to its customs and values even now. So like my faith should intersect with my life in the public sphere. It's going to affect how I interact with other people. But understand, that's not because I'm trying to transform the culture. It's because I'm living like a Christian. If you want to put it this way, I'm worshiping with all of my being. I'm, I'm living like a Christian, which means that I'm uh, I project, I proclaiming the coming kingdom as my faith intersects with my public life. You know, I'm loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so that intersects every part of my life. I'm just living like a Christian. So again, let me state, I think we can and should participate in and proclaim the coming kingdom now. We should do that now. By the way that we interact with the culture around us. Our Christianity should reach into the public <laughs> sphere, even if the intent is not necessarily to transform it. Our way of thinking about business and law and art and politics, all of that should be distinctively Christian. And that's not just in some kind of private sense. It includes the way that we interact with others in the public sphere. So the social or political gospel is not wrong in that sense. It's not wrong in thinking that our faith should connect with our culture. That's entirely legit. What the social gospel gets wrong is simply this. It makes the exact same error that all the other false gospels make. It confuses the result of the gift, the byproduct with the gift itself. Think about it. What are laws, right? What are laws, if not moral standards, enforced by the will of the government? That's actually what Paul says kings are in Romans 13. They are ministers of God who are supposed to administer justice on God's behalf. Now, very often they don't actually do that, right? That's why Jesus is actually going to have to come back and destroy the kings of the earth. It's because they are not doing the very thing that God has assigned them to do. Instead, they use their authority to serve themselves. They shape nations after their own image instead of after the image of God. Jesus is going to judge the nations of the earth for that. But all the same, that's ultimately what kings are supposed to do. This is why the family values gospel tends to overlap with the political gospel. It's because government is simply public morality. Social activism is the same way. Why does the younger generation feel compelled to go out and help the weak and the poor? It's because they're trying to live out their faith. They don't want to just talk about it. They want to do it. And while one generation has developed a reputation, again, deserved or not, while they've developed a reputation for defining that righteousness negatively by what we don't do, hence the focus on legislation, you have this other generation that understands that our faith should be expressed positively by what we should do. And they understand that this means love, Like, we just don't not sin, but we're to actively love other people. And so they go out and they try to help the poor and the needy as an expression of, of that love. Listen, that's just public morality. That's taking our faith and bringing it into the public sphere. At the end of the day, this is all that culture is. Culture is an expression of our values. It's an expression of what we believe to be important, of what we believe to be true, even of what we believe to be right and wrong. So let me ask you this, according to Jesus then, where is culture, society, politics, all these things, when they're rightly understood, where are these things supposed to come from? Where's the root? If all of that is just a reflection of what we think is important, if it's basically, for lack of a better term, public morality, then what's supposed to drive that according to Jesus? Well, what's the foundation of the law according to Jesus, right? Is it not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Is not the second commandment to love your neighbor driven by this first command to love God? Isn't worship then the root of all truly Christian society and culture? And what is worship but joy in God? Do you see? Yes, Jesus is he is going to establish a radically new society when he returns. But guess where this culture is going to come from? It's going to come from an earth that has been purged of sin through judgment. It's going to come from a people who as a whole love God. In other words, what's going to drive it is the people's love for Jesus. Again, he's the prize and the culture is just the byproduct of the people's joy over him. This is the way it has to work if it's going to meet God's perfect standard for righteousness. Jesus comes first and the culture comes second. It's the result of our joy in Him. What the social gospel, the political gospel, what they get wrong is that they flip the order. It assumes that the transformed society is the thing that we're hoping in. And then it just treats Jesus as the way to obtain it. The culture is the end. It's the object and Jesus is just the means. And that's not how it's going to work in the kingdom of heaven. The culture is going to be the byproduct of our joy in Christ. In other words, Jesus is the prize. He's the source of joy, and the culture is the result of the joy. It's the exhaust, so to speak. It's the aroma, the fragrance of the sacrifice. The one who believes in the social gospel gets that backwards. And again, that doesn't mean every Christian who is engaged in politics or social activism gets that backwards. I'm just saying that those Christians who do get that backwards, they've been sold a false gospel. They're hoping in the wrong thing. They're hoping in a kingdom when they're supposed to be hoping in a king. And really, that's the theme of all these goal-oriented false gospels, isn't it? Isn't it? They get the point of the gospel wrong. The point is Jesus. Listen, Jesus, He's not just our Redeemer, He's our hope. He's not just the means of our joy, He's the object of our joy. All the false Gospels we've mentioned, they're not entirely wrong. There is going to be physical blessing in the Kingdom of Heaven. We are going to be transformed into sinless beings. And the society around us will be transformed into a wonderful and blessed place to live. And we will be happy in all of this. We will be full of joy, an awestruck joy, a trembling joy. Yes, we will live rich and fulfilled lives. It's just that these things are all the byproduct of our relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the hub. And all the other things are just the spokes shooting off of our relationship with Him. Again, the gifts are just indicative of the giver. The bread points back to the bread maker. They point back to the source. So when we see these gifts, our eyes should naturally be drawn back to the source of them all, which is Jesus Christ. He's the one that produces these things. He's the goal. He's the prize. Everything else is just the result. It's the byproduct of the joy that we find in Him. And so as we conclude this portion of our series, and as you ask yourself, have I hoped in a false gospel The question that you should really be asking yourself is, is Jesus my hope? Is Jesus the object of my joy? Is Jesus what makes me happy? Do I find satisfaction in Him? Or do I find it in something else? Is it perhaps even in something that He provides? And I don't know about you, but I have to say, when I just put in those terms... Is Jesus what makes you happy? Do you find satisfaction in Him? It's at this point that I go, Oh Lord, help me. Holy Spirit, open my eyes, and I may see and Savior Jesus Christ. This is not our natural bent. This is not our natural inclination for anyone to take delight in Christ, just simply in Christ. So if you're sitting here this morning, And as all these false hopes are are categorically stripped away, if if you're sitting here this morning and you find that all you have left to hope in biblically is Jesus, and you're going, I don't love him like that. Do you know what that means? It means that you're a sinner in need of grace. Just like every one of us. And the good news is that this is exactly what Jesus has come to offer. You don't love him, not as you should. Even those of you who are in Christ, you don't love Him as you should. But Jesus has come and died so that you might love Him. He's died that you might be freed from the penalty and power of sin that keeps us in bondage to idols. He died so that you might instead find your joy and satisfaction in Him. This is the good news. Jesus suffers the wrath of God so that you might be forgiven. And in your forgiveness, that you might be freed from the power of your sins so that you might take delight in God once again. This is the gospel. The gospel is that, you know, you don't love God, but Jesus makes it so that you can. He reconciles you to God, and He does that in every single sense of the word. So if you're sitting there going, I don't find satisfaction in God. And again, this is true of every one of us at some level. So if this is you, and it is you, this is what you do. You begin by confessing your sins to Jesus. And you pray, Lord, open my eyes. By your Holy Spirit, open my eyes that I might take delight in you. That's what we're going to do here as we end our message this morning. Let's pray that God would open our eyes so that we might see and savor Christ.